Welcome back. Welcome back to another week of Book Club. I know we had uh, yeah. we had off last week, taking a little bit of a break, um, but we're diving back in this week. So I hope you guys are ready and excited to dive into Chapter 9 with us this week. Let's do it. This one, do you want to start out doing the summary for this one or do you want me to? I can do a summary. I think the I think the chapter title is a pretty good summary of this week. Um, yeah, I feel, I, like I, it's hard to sum- I feel like it's hard to summarize. I, I, I don't know about you, but I had a, I don't know, it's just kind of on all over the place chapter for me. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. Like a general, they had a general premise that they were going to talk about, but everything else was kind of all over the place. Yeah, kind of. I feel like this chapter could have been broken up into like three separate chapters. Yeah, or di- yeah, dissecting it more because I think the intent. Well, let me give it a little. So I'll get. Okay. Uh, the chapter nine. The title is "Organizing the Religi- the Religious Right at the End of the 20th Century," and that pretty much, as Scott said, summarizes it. They talk about all the way back from Carter. I guess Nixon was the very first one, but mm-hmm. kind of from Nixon like in early late 60s early 70s this rise of a evangelical the, like the term evangelical became more associated with a political group than it was just you know evangelical christians who were sharing the gospel boarding in christians mm-hmm. and kind of talking about the rise of that and the roots of it uh, i think we see it today a lot especially in all the elections that we've just been through i feel like it's been a, a major factor and yeah things that people have talked about uh, but it was kind of interesting to see the beginning of it and kind of the things that they were caring about and dealing with. Uh, again, I feel like it was kind of all over the place with those examples mm-hmm. of diving in there because he tried to cover Nixon and Reagan. I feel like he didn't yeah. spend a ton of time off Carter a little bit, but I don't know. It was it is an interesting chapter. I feel like it was kind of hard to read at times. Yeah, time. I agree with that. And I think kind of to summarize it even even a little bit further with something from the book at the beginning or from the chapter at the beginning of the chapter it said a 1976 article in the New York Times declared that the evangelical movement had become the major religious force in America, both in numbers and political impact. And, and that was 1976. And I think we've seen uh, it just grow from there. But that's kind of you know, when the New York Times takes notice of of what's going on in the within the religious realm, mm-hmm. then you can kind of really take note and see that the Christian religion wasn't just I'm going to go to church on Sunday and then kind of live my life. Mm-hmm. It started bleeding into every arena of life, which, you know, is a, is a good thing in some senses, but in, in another sense. Uh, you know, as the as the chapter unfolded, uh, I think this the the question of how does Christianity play a role in politics is the question that really he tried to answer. Mm. So, yeah, and, and not even talking more about should religion play in the politics or things like that, but more just how it has, mm-hmm. um, which I think it leads to the conversation. Then I feel like of okay, well, should christians be involved with politics to what extent you know Mm. so forth um we could probably have 
you know, five different hour long conversations on the religious <laughs> right and, and what it means and what our thoughts are on it, you know? For sure. So I don't know how much and how deep we're going to go into it on here. Uh, if you've listened to decent dialogue, you probably have a pretty good idea. Cause I feel like we've talked a little bit about uh, things that are similar to this in the sense mm-hmm. that just, just involvement and being like Christians being political sized as a political group and not being known as, like the evangelical title has become more associated with the policies and people that like conservative nature and like mm-hmm. pro-America, um, you know, Americans, a Christian nation than it is the true, you know, the true phrase of where evangelical started, where it's like just born again Christians who are committed to sharing the gospel and conversion. Yeah. Um, what, there are a couple. There are, what were you going to say? Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I don't I don't really have a. I have to be cautious in in my takeaways because I don't want to get into like an hour long conversation on some of the stuff, at least right right now, maybe on our decent dialogues on Monday, we can for sure. But I, some interesting things, I I thought it was interesting that one of the first policies that people in the evangelical community rallied behind was not abortion, which I feel like is a very, I, I like abortion is a very controversial topic today. And mm-hmm. if you associate, if you ask somebody what they associate evangelicals with, I feel like abortion is going to be one of the number one issues they talk about. It was interesting that it wasn't the primary focus at their beginning. Like you have that quote from the SBC talking about how he, he thinks abortion is okay in the cases of rape or incest or mm-hmm. anything like that. And uh, other people kind of having the same sentiment, but that they yeah. were really rallying behind this segregation laws that were coming about and basically the irs removing the tax exempt status from private yeah so i think i think you hit on two two big different things there uh and the first being the abortion one and i I, that one kind of surprised me a little bit because you always associate evangelicalism and christianity with being so against abortion and when you look at the history of who stood up against abortion uh, I think that quote from it was W.A. Gris, Griswold or Griswell, one of the the big name uh, Southern Baptist Clark, preachers. Clark, Liz, Clark Griswold? No, maybe. But it, it basically he was saying that abortion or he never assumed that a baby was viable until it was outside of the mother's womb. And that was, you know. I, I don't know who the equivalent would be today, but, uh, you know, think of a big name Southern Baptist preacher. And what if he said that? Like, there's no shot he would say that today. And the fact that that's where people's minds were back then, it was kind of mind blowing that that's where they were. And that's one of the things I really took away from this chapter. Uh, you know, maybe my first big takeaway or whatever is just that we we kind of look at our history through rose-colored glasses. And Mm -hmm. a lot of times our history is not what we think it is. And so when we do read our history and and read the way things were, uh, it's important to remember that, yes, this is the way things were, but it's not the way things have to be. And it's not necessarily the way things should be. Uh, And so kind of the people always talk about, let's go back to the good old days, or let's go back to this or that. And it's like, all right, well, what what are you talking about when you say you want to go back to the good old days? Yeah, like, I think there was a quote and there was they were talking about between Vietnam War and people advocating for women and gay rights that 
people thought the world, the people thought the nation was going to fall apart. Like you had people always say, let's go back to the good old days. I'm like, what? Like early 2000s and everybody was scared of terrorist attacks. Yeah. Um, or, you know, throughout the 70s and 80s in the Cold War, early 50s. It's just like, what good old days are you referring to? The 40s, yeah. World War II? Like, I just feel like we easily forget. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's important kind of what you talk about there too. Another takeaway is the whole kind of, if I'm kind of summarizing the purpose of why Jamar included this this chapter in the book, I'm hoping that I could say this and that he would agree with it, is that to emphasize how racism even after civil rights had just passed a few laws that that allowed black people to vote that um that that uh, that, that made segregation illegal that oh um, yeah outlawed yeah outlawed uh like you had civil rights acts and voting acts passed in the 60s and from the outsider perspective and actually what people today i feel like even believe is like oh racism was handled in the 60s and the mm-hmm. overt racism, basically almost like a hydra, like you cut off one of its heads, it like grows back two more in different ways, you know, like it just, it just, I, I don't know what a hydra is. No, maybe I'm alienating my audience. It's the big <laughs> monster in mythology that you cut off a head and two grow back. Oh, there you go. You defined it. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I shouldn't have you be reading my fantasy book. You're not gonna... <laughs> is, is that a very, is that like a staple? <laughs> It's all Hydras. You never seen Marvel Hydra? Where they get their I thought it was I thought Hydra was just the name of the organization that does bad stuff. It's based on a mythology. It's based on a creature. You learn something new every day. Um but racism the same way, like you cut off one head, like two grow back. Mm. And it just takes a different form. It just looks different. And Whereas it's not overt racism or overt language, it's a rise of people who now say like, oh, I see no color or things like that, that just kind of go ahead and live their life the way they want to. Mm -hmm. Continuing practices that are racism, they just use different language and different actions. And, you know, it's just like you get the sentiment that at time, I think it's important to realize, and we've talked about this before, but in reading this book, that it happened in a specific time and culture and people thought a certain way and Mm -hmm. it's easy to look back and and bash on them and villainize them. You know, I think you need to say like, okay, if I was in that time period, what would I be thinking? You know, because I don't Mm -hmm. think it's as easy. I think people, people are falling in this trap because of generations of being told something, you know, I think gradually over time it's changing, but um, I just think it's important to realize that like kind of summarizing that that racism does just because it doesn't look like it did during the 1860s and the, you know, in slavery or um, in the Jim Crow era or things like that, just because it doesn't look that way or it's not as overtly expressed doesn't mean mm-hmm. it's not there. It just takes different form. Yeah. And I think one of the one of the things he said in the book is we have the responsibility to at the very least consider how the systems we trust in have supported racial inequities and that's that kind of maybe even sums up the the chapter pretty well too in that when we look at our history and what we believe in and the systems that we trust in uh, what are we putting our trust in are we putting our trust and faith in something blindly that we really have no idea what the foundation is on or are we looking at what the foundation is and saying yes I trust in this system, but I also know 
that the foundation of this system might have some flaws. I think that we look at whatever our foundations are, you know, like take our country, for example, a lot of people will look at our country and say, it's perfect. We're the greatest in the world. Uh, it's awesome. Nobody beats America, so on and so forth. And yeah, you know, America is great. I love living in America. I'm very thankful I live in America, but that doesn't mean you can't point out things that are uh, wrong or could be better. Uh, you know, that's that's how you do get better as a nation is looking mm -hmm. at things that have been uh, wrong in the past and thinking, all right, how can I correct these going forward? Uh, I know I hope that's how I live my own life. I look at how, you know, the things that I believe in in my own life and say, this is what I've believed in for the past 15, 20 years and what I've, you know, how I've lived my life, but maybe I've been doing something wrong. Maybe I could have been better. Uh, and really taking a look at that history and saying, all right, going forward, what can I do better? And, and I think that that line, you know, we have the responsibility to at the very least consider how the systems we trust in have supported racial inequities. And taking that sentence and applying it to our everyday life uh, is so important. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a, you encapsulated that pretty well, and I don't want to add on to it. But <laughs> that was chapter nine. Again, I know it's, I feel like we didn't get into detail or too in the weeds on it, on what happened in the chapter, but I hope you have the chance to read mm -hmm. it yourselves just because there is, it's pretty thick. It's pretty dense. It's kind of all over the place. Uh, it's definitely something that you just have to read for yourself. Uh, we mm -hmm. can, we could spend a while just sitting here summarizing it, but yeah, I mean, overall, he, he pointed out just uh, real quick, he did point out, you know, a couple other things that we could really get into the weeds about. Uh, and in case you're not reading the book, a couple of those things are, uh, he, he really talked about Jerry Falwell mm -hmm. uh, a lot in, in some sections and a couple of the things just to point out that he, he talked about with him is Falwell declared preachers are not called to be politicians, but soul winners, basically saying preachers have no, no say, or shouldn't have any, uh, influence in the political realm. But then, you know, a couple years, I don't know how long it was, maybe a couple years later, he flipped his stance and he went on a. Uh, I love America rally tour, just, you know, just going all in on politics. Uh, so I thought that was an interesting uh, thing. And then also Falwell claimed that capitalism was the only Christian form of commerce and contended that a free enterprise system liberated from government constraints would lift black people out of poverty. So, I mean, we could talk another hour mm. or two hours on that statement alone. Uh, but there is a lot in this chapter, again, like Greg's saying, and it, it was kind of all over the place. But, uh, you know, I thought those were two interesting things that he kind of dove into as well. For sure. But chapter nine, that's uh, in the books now. Get it? That's a good <laughs> pun, right? Uh, there's three more chapters left to Killer Compromise. And then we may have kind of a, I don't know, we'll see. Maybe the last episode will make it a little bit longer and talk about overall kind of how yeah. we enjoyed the book. That'd be good. It, um, maybe we won't do a separate exit. Thing for that but if you have any questions as well or things that you've been been reading or thinking about as you've been as you've been going through this as well shoot us them and we'll try to incorporate them into that last episode as well so but we will catch you guys next week bye all right bye